0: I'll be reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 1 through 3. Then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed at His presence. This is the Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Chad. Morning, Arcadia. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we get started this morning? Gracious and loving God, our Lord, God of mercy, God of forgiveness, God of sacrifice, God of redemption, You've given us minds to know You and hearts to love You and voices to sing Your praise. And God, we've been doing that and we thank You for that. And now as we turn to Your Word, I just pray that You would fill us with Your Spirit so that we might celebrate Your glory, so that we might know You by Your Spirit in truth. And God, that we could see our story in Yours and that we could understand the power that You have and the love that You have for us. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in our uh, fourth week of this series called Faithful, but we are actually in our uh, last week of Joseph. So it's kind of a benchmark week. Next week we're going to uh, do sort of a, um, a stand-alone message for Father's Day and then... The following six weeks, we'll get back into the series on Faithful, which we'll have a new and separate study guide for, and we'll spend six weeks in Daniel. But I want to spend just a couple of minutes reviewing where we are, uh, getting us up to speed for this last um, message on Joseph, which uh, I will just tell you up front is going to be, uh, in, in some respects, it's going to be part tickle and part torture, because we're going to deal with some really heavy stuff. Uh, this morning, but it's going to be stuff that's really uh, redemptive as well. If you're following along in our Bibles that you get from under the chair, it's page 25. And we are going to start in Genesis 45, chapter 45. Okay? So uh, Joseph, this guy, has 11 brothers and he gets a little sideways with them and they decide to um, sell him into slavery. Uh, and uh, Joseph ends up going down to Egypt. Uh, which is 200 miles away from where they live, which in their time and day might as well have been 5,000 miles, um, and they assume that he's dead. But Joseph survives, and uh, after surviving one trying experience after another for 13 years, Joseph emerges from prison and becomes the second in charge in Egypt, which was the the world superpower at the time. He became Pharaoh's right hand man. Pharaoh being the king of Egypt. Uh, uh, Joseph was actually placed in charge of the economy, essentially, in Egypt, and therefore uh, the greater part of the world in that section, and um, was in charge of the inventory of grain, not only during the prosperous seven years, but then t- uh, during the seven years of famine that were to come, and it was a blistering famine. So uh, we're 21 years into uh, Joseph's being sold into slavery. He's now 38 years old. He hasn't seen his brother's or his father in in 21 years. They assume he's dead. And uh, guess who needs some grain but his brothers and his father. And so his father sends his brothers down, 10 of his brothers, not all 11, but 10 of his brothers down to buy some grain from Joseph because they heard there was this guy in Egypt that had inventory of grain. And they uh, go in to see Joseph to buy the grain. They do not recognize Joseph, but Joseph, of course, recognizes them. They bow down to him which is actually the fulfillment of Joseph's two dreams that we see in chapter 37, which is pretty interesting. And after a series of tests and dramas, about a year later, so now we're 22 years into this, about a year later uh, they come back to buy more grain and Joseph looks at them and says, here's the deal, you're going to have to leave your um, youngest brother, Benjamin, and uh, leave him as my slave and the rest of you can go home to Jacob. And it's at that point where Judah, fresh off of his humiliating experience with Tamar, but an experience where uh, he came to understand his own depravity and sinfulness, uh, and you find that in chapter 38, he steps up and delivers a speech that is a, a speech of repentance. It is a speech of sacrifice. It is a speech of... Courage to his brothers. It is a speech of humility in which he says, sacrificially, listen, uh, you have all the power, we don't. Here's what I'd like you to consider doing take me as your slave and let Benjamin go home with my brothers. And it's at that point when Joseph finally realizes that God has done a work of repentance in the hearts of his brothers and it's time to reveal himself. And that's where we left off last week. And so, looking at the first few. Uh, verses of, of chapter 45, the story continues. These are the verses that Chad just read for us. It says this, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Make everyone go out from Me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so hard that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. This is the third or fourth time now that we've seen Joseph weeping in the midst of this situation. And and he is just wrecked emotionally by what's going on and has been going on with his brothers. And then verse 3 he says, And Joseph said to his brothers, Ani Yossaph, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Now why were they dismayed at his presence? They haven't seen him for 22 years. And Joseph could have at any time already had them executed, but he hadn't. The reason they're dismayed is because they felt probably that Joseph had just been toying with them, getting them set up for now when he's going to execute them. This guilt that has followed these brothers around has now come to this culmination right here. And they feel so guilty. And they know in their minds that if what had happened to Joseph, what they did to Joseph had happened to them, they would certainly probably want to kill the perpetrator of that sin. And so they're thinking about what Joseph, who has the power to do it, must be thinking, and so they're dismayed at his presence. And Joseph senses that they are dismayed at his presence. So verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, "'Come nearer to me, please.'" And they came near, probably with much trepidation, wondering if Joseph was hiding a sharp-edged instrument somewhere in his cloak. And he said, "'I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life.'" "...for the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will still be neither plowing nor harvest." In other words, this terrible famine is going to continue. "...and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors." God, sent, God did this, not you, so that many people would be kept alive, including you, my brothers, who sold me into slavery." So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Now, I think it's fascinating. I have the ability to nurture and nurse a grudge. I have the ability to nurture and nurse bitterness and resentment toward people. And if I had ever been sold into slavery and had 22 years to noodle on this, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for me to have the grace, the mercy, and the humility to rather than send them to the dungeon and get a little taste of their own medicine... Point to God and say, This was God's plan all along. You didn't do this to me. God used you to do this to me for God's greater purpose and greater plan so that there might be life preserved in this land when this terrible famine came and that there might be your life preserved when this terrible famine came. God did this, not you. It would be very difficult for me to point to God and say this was all part of His grand plan and I had to suffer for 13 years in order for God's plan to come about. Why was Joseph able to do that? We're going to talk about that all morning. He was able to do it not under his own power. I don't have the power to do that. I don't think you do either. He was able to do that because he had the power of God in him. Because he knew God. And he knew His sovereign power. And although Christ hadn't been raised from the dead yet, it is that resurrection power that Joseph had living in Him, dwelling in Him through His Lord and God, Yahweh. It is, it is an absolutely amazing thing. And then you think about He's going to send them back to Jacob now, their father. And He says, tell Jacob that I'm still alive. <laughs> Can you imagine this conversation? Wouldn't you like to be on a, a fly on the wall for that one? Hey, this is Canaan, maybe a grasshopper on the floor. I don't know. But anyway, wouldn't you like to be there to listen to this? little YouTube video, maybe, you know? Jacob has probably gotten used to his sons coming back now with nothing but bad news. Jacob's probably sitting there going, I'll bet you I lose not only Benjamin and Simeon, but maybe three or four others. I'll be happy if six guys come back this time but this time they are going to come back with good news. It's the first time in our story that they're coming back to Jacob for good news. Look at verses 14 through 18 as they get ready for this. Then Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. By the way, uh, 4,000 years ago in this culture, it was okay for men to fall on each other's necks and weep. Uh, That was okay. You were still a manly man if you did that, okay? And Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say, it, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land in Egypt, and you shall eat of the fat of the land. I have been alive for 53 years. I have been waiting for somebody with great wealth and power to say to me, Frank, you may eat of the fat of the land that I will provide for you. Actually, Tyler said it to me when he invited me to join Redemption. He said, you may come to Redemption and eat of the fat of the land of Redemption Church. And I said, "Uh, where do I sign up? For Redemption has much fat. And I want to. Indul- I'm kidding. All right. Anyway, I've been waiting for that, and they say this now to these guys. This is this is an amazing thing. So it's all set up. The brothers are going to go and get Jacob, and they're going to get their wives, and they're going to get their children and livestock, and they're all going to move down to the best land in Egypt. Turn over now to chapter forty-five, verses twenty-five through twenty-eight, the end of forty-five. So they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt and his heart became none for he did not believe them it's like why would you guys toy with me i'm really old why would you guys pull a joke like this on me i don't believe you but when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had uh, had sent to carry him The spirit of their father Jacob revived and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. You all know what a bucket list is, right? Now most of you in this room are probably too young to be thinking about assembling your bucket list right now. Like I said, I'm 53. I've been starting to make notes on what my bucket list might look like. And I have a few things on that. Here's Jacob's bucket list. See Joseph before I die. That's it. That's his bucket list. That's all he wants to do. And it looks like that's going to, going to uh, come true. And so you go through the first part of chapter 46 and they make all the arrangements and now they're on their trip down to Egypt. You're getting ready for this first meeting between Joseph and Jacob that is going to occur in, in 22 years. Go to forty-six chapter, uh, chapter 46, verse 28. Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Jacob lives a few more years, by the way. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock. We've been shepherds. From our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Okay, so here's the deal. This is, this is kind of an interesting thing here. First of all, this is a wonderful and beautiful picture of the Gospel. These are Hebrews. Egyptians detest Hebrews. These are shepherds. Egyptians detest shepherds. There is nothing in Jacob's family that would make them deserving of getting the best land in Egypt from Pharaoh. Yet they get it. This is a picture of the Gospel. I am a sinner. I I am a fallen person. My human nature is filled with evil and depravity. And for no reason in myself, Jesus went to the cross to pay for my sins so that I might be reconciled to God and then rose from the grave so that I might have eternal life. Nothing in me deserves that. Yet I get that. In a sense, I get to go and live in the land of Goshen and live off the fat of the land. My Goshen, however, is going to be the New Jerusalem. And it's going to be awesome. If you don't know anything about the New Jerusalem, read the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. It's going to be really good. Better than Goshen. It's a wonderful picture of the Gospel. Nothing deserving in us. Yet God loves us this much to be able to do this for us, to forgive us of everything that we have ever done against Him, against others, against ourselves. Now, let me summarize the next three chapters for you. Joseph continues to work the plan. He's got people from all over the world as well as all over Egypt coming to him in order to buy grain so that they might live and not die. And he has to do that in an equitable way. This must have been a high-stress job, I would imagine. As difficult as it was to collect grain during the first seven years, it was probably ten times more difficult to distribute it during the ensuing seven years. Jacob and his family move in. Jacob... Uh, gets to meet Pharaoh. There's actually a meeting between Jacob and Pharaoh, the the, the man with all the power in Egypt and the patriarch uh, who is in charge of his family. And the two of them come together. And, And Pharaoh pays Jacob much honor and respect. Now why would he do that? Here's why. Joseph has essentially saved Egypt Joseph has served Pharaoh loyally and faithfully. And Pharaoh has seen that. And not only has Pharaoh seen that, but he has seen that the Lord is with Joseph. He has seen God in Joseph. And so this loyalty and faithfulness that Joseph has shown Pharaoh because of God in him is now being reciprocated by Pharaoh. Now, that is not a formula for you to expect everybody's going to reciprocate to you if you behave like Joseph to everybody. But in this case, it certainly happened. And so Pharaoh takes care of, of Joseph's father and their family. And, and they live in the land. And Jacob eventually gets to the age where he's going to die. 147 years old. Jacob lives to be 147 years old. Jacob single-handedly bankrupts Social Security in Egypt 4,000 years ago. He was taking money from Social Security longer than he was putting money in. Interesting. And of course, the administration had lots of debates about that. But anyway, so Joseph brings his sons in as Jacob is on his deathbed now. He's 147. So Joseph brings his two sons in, Jacob's grandsons, for the traditional blessing from the patriarch who is about to die. And Jacob does his thing with Ephraim and, and Manasseh. And then all of Joseph's brothers come in for their traditional blessing from the patriarch before he dies. And it's interesting reading. We don't have time to go through it, but it is very interesting reading because I don't get the sense that all the sons were really blessed by Jacob by what he said. Some of what he said seems a little snarky and a little nasty and a little harsh at times to certain of the sons. Some of the sons certainly were blessed, but others must have walked out going... Well, that wasn't worth the walk over to old dad's room. So you ought to read through that. And then once he's done all of that, he gives very specific instructions to those guys, the sons who are in charge of burying him, about how he wants to be buried, how he wants to be taken care of. He needs to be taken back to the land of Canaan, to the land of his fathers, his ancestors. He wants it done a very special way. As a a pastor, I've had meetings like that with, with people, with spouses with couples where they come in and they say, listen, I, we need you to be involved in the planning of our memorial services. We need to leave instructions, which by the way, I know that may sound a little morbid to you, but, but it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea to get your orders in affair fair before you don't have any choice in the matter anymore and other people are trying to figure that out. It will help the people that survive you as well. So he leaves his burial instructions and we pick it up there. Turn to chapter 49. The last verse in chapter 49. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. You know, you and I don't like to talk about death in such stark terms either. We have euphemisms for death and this was one of theirs. He was gathered to his people. That means he died. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him and Joseph commanded his servants the physicians to embalm his father so the physicians embalmed Israel Jacob 40 days were required for that for that is how many are required for embalming and the Egyptians wept over him for 70 days and so once that was done Jacob and his brothers took i'm sorry Joseph and his brothers took Jacob to his final resting place about 200 miles away it was a long journey Joseph had to take a, a, a lot of time off from work in order to get it arranged and get it done properly. And then they come back from this journey and watch what happens. It seems like something happens that we thought we had already dealt with, but it comes up again, and now you begin to understand why this story, which could have ended in, verse, in chapter 45, needed five more chapters to be told. Look at chapter four, uh, 50, verses 14 and 15. After Joseph had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Didn't we take care of this already? Wasn't this already taken care of? Not quite. There's so many things going on here, I don't even hardly know where to begin. First of all, what Joseph's brothers did to him was really awful, and they know it. And for Joseph to just forgive them unconditionally the way they did and point to God the way they did, Neil Pitchell calls this the unbelievability of forgiveness. The unbelievability of forgiveness. Have you ever been forgiven by someone for something that you did that was pretty nasty and they do not hold it against you and you just really have a hard time believing it? That's the unbelievability of forgiveness. What Christ has done for us on the cross is thoroughly beyond belief. It's the unbelievability of forgiveness. But, but, but let's take this a little bit further. They've been forgiven by Joseph, right? Joseph said this was God's plan. God was even involved in this, guys. You have nothing to worry about. Yet their guilt was so deep that even years after they had been forgiven and years after they had lived in the land of Goshen and years after Joseph had demonstrated time and time again that they were thoroughly forgiven, their guilt was still so heavy on them that they felt like as soon as Jacob died they were, he, that Joseph was still going to carry out his plan for revenge, Right? It's like this. It's like when somebody comes to Christ, when God finally opens their eyes and their heart and they come to Christ in repentance and faith and through the cross and through the resurrection they have been forgiven and redeemed and counted as righteous before God. They are now holy before God. That happens. And at the cross, all of our guilt should be gone. That that metaphoric, Ball and chain of guilt that we've been carrying around all of our lives. When when Christ saves us and we come to the cross, it's like He brings down these big cosmic bolt cutters and He goes down and He just cuts that ball of guilt off. And what do we do? We reach down, pick up the ball of guilt, and continue to carry it around with us. And that's not supposed to be the way it is. We should release that guilt. These brothers could not release their guilt. They were in trouble because of this. And then let me just bring this out. I'm, I'm going I'm to dig deep into the movie archives for this one here. We see this coming out of Hollywood as well. Anybody ever see the Godfather movies? Remember Godfather 2? Fredo has sinned grievously against his brother Michael who runs the family. And Michael has clearly demonstrated that he has an ability to just kill people who have sinned against him in revenge. And so Fredo knows that once this sin had been exposed, that he was in trouble, and so he starts to hide out. And Michael keeps trying to send messages to Fredo. Tell Fredo he can come out of hiding. I'm not going to kill him. I just want to talk to him. I just want to be with him. Tell him he can come back to Reno and Lake Tahoe. Tell him to come back. Tell him to come back. But he won't come back. He won't come back. He doesn't trust Michael, and frankly, neither would I. Finally, Fredo comes back and there's a moment where they embrace and there's this supposed forgiveness. But the mother dies. The father was already dead. If you know the story, he died in Godfather one. That's why Michael got promoted. The mother dies. A couple weeks later, Fredo is assassinated. Paul, Michael's favorite hitman, goes with him out onto Lake Tahoe while Fredo is is fishing. Of course, Fredo knows he's going to get assassinated because he immediately begins to say the rosary. Paul pulls out a shotgun and assassinates him there on Lake Tahoe. You see, somebody once said that there are no original stories coming out of Hollywood, just bad rip-offs of biblical stories. For years, for centuries, for millennia, we have known about how revenge is often carried out once patriarchs, matriarchs are out of the picture. From Godfather 3, of course, Michael says revenge is, a, is best served when the plate is cold. And so the brothers are sitting there thinking our brother might be Michael Corleone, and he might be waiting for Jacob to be dead for him to finally carry out this execution. So what happens? Look at verses 16 through 21. So they're so frightened about this prospect that they don't even go to see Joseph. They sent, message, they sent a message to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. We have no record that Jacob said this to his, to his sons. None. So most scholars assume that the brothers are making this up. You know, look, Jacob's dead, so you don't have to do what he's going to say anymore, but we're going to tell you what he said to us, okay, so that they have some power in the situation. And Joseph wept wept when he went and spoke with them. Joseph is still broken up about their guilt. He's still weeping for them and their pain. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, "Behold, we are your servants." But Joseph said to them, "Do not fear. So Joseph says, look, even though Jacob is gone and I have every power and every right now to execute you, I won't do it because of God. Because God meant this for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God meant this for good. I'm not going to do anything to you. How does this how does this happen? I'm telling you I would have been, I would have just sent him right to the dungeon and then contemplated about 15 years of torture. That's just that's just the flesh in me. That's that's my fallen nature. How can we forgive like this? Uh, go over into the New Testament, way to the right. Go through the Gospels, past the Gospels, And go to Romans chapter 12. Go to Romans chapter 12. Here's the Apostle Paul, inspired and led by the Holy Spirit, writing to the church in Rome. And here's what he says starting in verse 17 Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to what you to do what is honorable in the sight of all if possible as far as it depends on you live peaceably with all beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he's thirsty give him something to drink for by so doing you will you will heap burning coals on his head do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good now there's a lot here that I, that I I want to spend some time unpacking first of all that idea of heaping burning coals on somebody by doing good to them after they've done evil to you i've heard this taught this way this is actually your spiritual revenge on them. you're going to get them by being nice to them. you're going you're gonna to really mess with them, by, and that's not what it is. This is a cultural reference. Um, back then, if you sinned against somebody in your community, it, it was not the, 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 the ask for forgiveness was not done in private because most sin is not done in private. And so if you sinned against somebody and now you wanted to repent and you wanted to confess your sin and you wanted to ask for for forgiveness, the traditional way to do it was not to go to them in secret and ask for forgiveness, but rather to place a pan of burning coals on your head and walk around in the community as if to pronounce to everybody, I have sinned against my brother or my sister, I am repenting and I am accepting responsibility for the sin I have committed. So what Paul is saying is that by overcoming evil with good, it's similar to what he says in Romans chapter 2 when he says the kindness of God will lead people to repentance. And ultimately what he says in this passage is that vengeance is in yours anyway. It's not your job to avenge yourself. It's God's job and His sovereign will and His sovereign power and His sovereign good purpose under His understanding He will do it the way He thinks it needs to be done. It may not be the way you think it needs to be done, but He will certainly do it in some way, shape, or form, and you need to just leave it to Him. This is what Joseph did. He left it to God to deal with his brothers. He was called to be a brother to his brothers and to love them unconditionally. And then I will just tell you that this is this is a little... Social science for you that I think is fascinating. This idea of overcoming evil with good. Social science has demonstrated over and over and over through research projects that this actually works. At some point, somebody has to stop the negative downward spiral of evil. And again, I'm really good, I'm really good at this. You know, all you got to do is drive with me on the one-on-one for like five minutes and you'll figure out that I'm really good at when somebody cuts me off, I'm going to cut them off twice going to show them who the cutoff boss is, I'll tell you what. And then they're going to cut me off three times, and then I'm going to pull a knife, and he's going to pull a gun. By the way, a knife in, a, in road rage doesn't do much good. So, um, so it just, It's just the way we escalate things. So when I was working on my master's of communication at ASU, I took a, a a class in interpersonal conflict. And there was one other Christian guy in the class, and he was actually a part of my cohort. He's a communication PhD now and, and, and uh, uh, teaches communication at Whitworth University in in Washington. Terrific young guy, but we became close friends. And one of the first assignments we had was to read and and review and summarize this 40-page research project, which goes through all the uh, literature review and the methodology and the data, and then it comes to the conclusion. And if you're a social science, what you really want to read is you want to read the last two or three pages where the conclusion is. How do people really behave? That's what you want to know. What has social science found out about human nature? And here's what this one report... This one research study discovered about conflict between people. It discovered that when you try to overcome evil with evil, it doesn't work. It just encourages people to continue trying to overcome evil with evil. But if you overcome evil with good, it stops the negative downward spirals and you can actually move forward in your, in your conflict resolution. So their, their, their c- conclusion in this research study was that you shouldn't try to overcome evil with evil, but rather you should overcome evil with good. And out in the little margin, after reading this, I had written Romans chapter 12. And then I went to class and I sat down next to Alan and he opened up his research project. And in the little margin, he had written Romans chapter 12. And he and I had a good laugh about how they had this big research project and spent untold money and had all of this stuff. And, and all these guys got together... And we're going, you know, you could have just read this guy 2000, who wrote this 2,000 years ago and you would have saved you a lot of trouble, okay? This guy 2,000 years ago, inspired by the Holy Spirit, already knew what you think you've discovered today. Can you imagine these guys sitting around patting each other on the back? We discovered that you can't overcome evil with evil. <laughs> Ever heard of a guy named Paul? Okay, It's interesting to me. Um, Miroslav Wolf, I've talked about him before. He's a Yugoslavian now living in the United States a bible scholar, suffered through a lot of the wars in yugoslavia literally saw people come into his town and the enemy come into his town and rape and pillage and kill and just utter devastate terrible things that most people in this room I'm sure maybe all have never seen before and in his flesh, he wanted retribution in his flesh he wanted vengeance in his flesh he wanted to to fix their wagon, so to speak. But he also knew of Romans chapter 12. He said, vengeance is God's. I'm going to leave it up to Him. Now you and I can't do that under our own power. We can't pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. This has to be the power of the cross of Christ, the power of the resurrected Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. That's why Christ went to the cross to forgive us and also to empower us to be able to forgive others. Look at look at Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Starting with verse 3, this is what Jesus says. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I'm telling you, this is hard. This is really hard. I've had people sin against me. I don't want to forgive them. I want them to pay for it. But the reason Jesus can say this is the same reason that Paul said it and the same reason that Joseph did it. It's by God's power. It's God's sovereignty. It's His to take care of. And I will tell you that all the sin that has been perpetrated against me by other people in this world and in my lifetime is nothing compared to the sin that I have committed against God and against others. And Jesus has forgiven me for that. And if He can forgive me for that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I should be able to extend that forgiveness to other people if I really believe what I say about Jesus. But there's even more to it than that. Research has shown that when you don't forgive... By the way, the word forgive, if you do a little word study, it means to release or let go. So forgiveness is not just for the person you're forgiving, but it's also for you. There is a benefit to it. When you forgive, you release and let go of this bitterness, this... resentment, resentment, this anger, this desire for revenge. And and here's the physiological advantage of doing that. Uh, Research has shown that when you nurse a grudge and you nurse resentment and you nurse bitterness, the part of the brain that is occupied with that nursing is the same part of your brain that is your most creative part. It's the part where you do your best work. It's the part where you are most productive. It's the part where really God can use you for His purpose, His best. And if you've got on your hard drive, your brain, that part of the brain that's most creative, if all you've got on there is nursing grudges, you're really not going to be used very well by God. And your life is going to be dismal and difficult. David Augsburger in in 19... Um, uh, 19- 1985 wrote a, cl- a book now that's considered a classic. It's, it's called The Freedom of Forgiveness. And, and he talks about this idea of the negative spirals downward. And he says somebody has to have the courage and the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to stop those negative spirals downward when we're in conflict and we, we are in wars with each other and we, we, we don't want to forgive. Somebody has to be the one that stops it and eats it and takes it back upward. It's Romans chapter 12. Ultimately, we have to eat some of the pain in order to be able to do this. Again, we don't have the power to do this. It's by the power of Christ in us. But ultimately, that's what Jesus did. That's what His character is as He hung on the cross. And that's what Joseph did with his brothers by the power of God in Him. And let me just say this. If you want to compare breakfast and forgiveness, here you go. When it comes to breakfast and forgiveness, you and I need to be more pig than chicken. And the reason is because all the chicken does is supply the egg, but the pig supplies what? Skin, meat. When it comes to forgiveness, you and I have to be willing to put some skin in the game. It's the only way it works. This is a magnificent book. It's called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. I'm going to read to you a section of it. And I know, I know for some of you it's like, this is like death when somebody reads a section of a book to you. I'm going to make it as interesting as possible. It's about four paragraphs. Hang in there with me. If you have any caffeine with you, take a sip now. That will help you get through the next three minutes, okay? But this is so good. There is no way I could say this as, as well as Tim Keller has said it, so you need to hear it from him. And I guarantee you after you hear it, you're going to want to buy the book. Here's what he says about forgiveness. Most of the wrongs done to us cannot be assessed in purely economic terms. That's true. In fact, I will tell you that the economic loss I've had from people sinning against me is not nearly as bad as the other kind of loss I've had when people sin against me. Someone may have robbed you of some happiness or reputation or opportunity or certain aspects of your freedom. No price tag can be put on such things, yet we still have a sense of violated justice that does not go away when the other person says, "'I'm really sorry.'" How many of you have been recipients of that kind of an apology? Hey, I'm really sorry. Not that fulfilling, right? Okay. When we are seriously wronged, we have an inc- indelible sense that the perpetrators have incurred a debt that must be dealt with. Once you have been wronged and you realize there is a just debt that simply cannot be dismissed, there are only two things to do. The first option is to seek ways to make the perpetrator suffer for what they have done to you. You can withhold relationship and actively initiate or passively wish for some kind of pain in their lives, commensurate to what you experience. By the way, because of self-serving bias and attribution theory, when we try to decide what is commensurate with the pain we've suffered for that person to suffer, it's always more for them. It's just the way we operate. There, there, um, there are many ways that you can do this. You can viciously confront them, saying things that hurt. You can go around to others and tarnish their reputation. If the perpetrator suffers, you may begin to feel a certain satisfaction, feeling that they are now paying off their debt. Um, the reason he says a certain satisfaction is because our satisfaction will never be satisfied by retribution or revenge. This feeling of justice that we feel we must have from somebody who has sinned against us This idea that we need to be made whole again, it'll never happen again. Superman cannot go the opposite way around the earth and and, and bring you back to a place where you were before the the, the sin happened to you. It just doesn't happen. You will never be really made whole again. You just need to accept that. And, And again, lots of research has been done in this subject. Uh, And and the research has been done with with, uh, family members who have sought the death penalty for the perpetrator of a crime against somebody in their family where they killed somebody in their family. And they work so hard for years and years and years and years and years to get that death penalty because they believe that once the death sentence is pronounced, they are somehow going to be vindicated, made whole, and justice will survive. And every time that they've done this research and they've gone to people afterwards, the people have said the same thing. You know what? It's just not enough. I still don't feel like justice was served. By the way, that is not a social commentary on the death penalty. It's just an observation of research about it. So that's why we can never be fully satisfied by carrying out revenge ourselves. And and Keller says this, there are some serious problems with this option, however. You may may become harder and colder, more self-pitying, and therefore more self-absorbed. If the wrongdoer was a person of wealth or authority, you may instinctively dislike and resist that sort of person for the rest of your life. If it was a person of the opposite sex or another race, you might become permanently cynical and prejudiced against entire classes of people. In addition, the perpetrator and his friends and family often feel that they have the right to respond to your payback in kind. Cycles of reaction and retaliation can go on for years. There's Augsburger's negative downward spirals that he talks about evil has been done to you yes but when you try to get payment through revenge the evil does not disappear instead the evil spreads and it spreads most tragically of all into you and to into your own character there is another option however you can forgive forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did however to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to when you want to do so with all of your being is agony You talk about the agony of the cross. And certainly, the majority of the agony of the cross was when the Father turned His back on Jesus because Jesus became sin. But there were other agonies as well. There was the physical agony and there was this agony here. Jesus had the power to come off the cross in the middle of that and pinch off the heads of the people that were doing this to Him. And yet, He refrained from doing that. Instead, He asked God to forgive them for doing that to Him. It is agony. It is a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forego the, consol- the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Maybe a death on the cross? Yes, but it is a death that leads to resurrection. Resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. Why is this important to us, Redemption Arcadia? Here's why. We are a church that's gospel-centered and outward-focused. That means we're missional. That means we're going to go into the community. That means we're going to tell people about the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, that He loves you, He's forgiven you. We're going to help refugees. We're going to help our community. We're going to be the light in the community, not the dark and closed doors. But in order to be missional people, we have to be people who forgive. We have to be people who ask for forgiveness. We have to be people who are willing to examine ourselves. And understand that our power comes not from us, but from God. That our forgiveness comes not from us, but from God. And as a result, we can forgive others. That's when the Gospel will really move in our community. When we understand the power of the resurrected Christ in our lives. Check this out, man. Joseph had all kinds of power, right? Jesus had all kinds of power. Neither one of them used their power to destroy, but instead, both of them use their power to bring life. We live in a culture that hates power, that denigrates power, that doesn't want anybody to have power. Power's not the problem. It's how we use power that's the problem. And if the church becomes a, 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 an entity that uses the incredible cosmic God power that we have for good, people will have a different understanding of power. They'll see it as the power to redeem and to give life and to forgive and to love. That's our call. That was Joseph's call. That's what Jesus did for us. And as the church, that's how we should move forward. Let's pray together as Sean comes up to lead us into more worship. God, thank you for how you have given us the gift of life, even though you could have given us destruction and death. And you've done that through your Son. God, we thank you for that. and We just pray that you would give us the courage to lean into that and to live by that, that we would recognize the power of the Holy Spirit in us. God, thank you for your Son, your Spirit, your Word, and for who you are. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. And thanks Frank uh, we had a